Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. For many of us, perhaps most of us, 2020 has been a horrible year. Can we look forward to improvement in 2021? Although electors have met and cast their ballots for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president, Republicans may continue to retain control of the Senate. Vaccines are being administered to curb the spread of COVID-19, but although the president said we wouldn't be hearing anything more about it after the election day, deaths from the pandemic have uh, passed 360,000 in the United States. Unemployment uh, has suddenly gone up again, and uh, and millions face the loss of protections against eviction. Journalist Bob Henley reports for Public Radio Salon, the chief leader, and other news outlets, including this show where he has been following these and other political and economic developments with a particular focus on their effects locally. And Bob Henley joins us again now to discuss local and national politics and economics. Welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. How'd you do with the snowstorm? Uh, I um, have a lot of snow around my house. (laughs) I'm waiting for somebody to come and plow. It's heavy. What about you? Well, uh, it's the benefits of making the choice to live down at the Jersey Shore, where thanks to global warming, the ocean temperature is warm enough that we had the best of both worlds. Four inches of snow when we went to bed, and now, quick, do it's all gone. Uh, I have about a, a foot of snow around my house. Um, the, the inauguration of Joe Biden is just over a month away, but Donald Trump and his most devoted supporters still contend that he really won. What are Republicans in New York and New Jersey saying now? Well, uh, it depends on the county. Uh, one of the results of the election has been um, the kind of further fracturing of the electoral map, uh, which has a direct effect in something as basic as the response to the COVID pandemic. So in New York, uh, you have some 60-odd counties, and it looks like Biden's win, while substantial, was concentrated in, like, I think, 14, 15, 16 counties with a vast swath of counties to the north and west, with the exception of some major population centers going for Trump. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, uh, Trump had uh, cowered, uh, carried several counties, um, and then, but that has a result in the administration of how essential workers are being handled. Like if you're a civil servant that has the misfortune of being in a county that went for Trump, the likelihood is you're going to be having a manager that doesn't put much stock in keeping you safe. So. That's the real reality. That's what's happening, I'd imagine, in the tri-state region in terms of the granularity of it. And so the degree to which that uh, Republicans hold on to this um, into the next year, it it has a a way of destabilizing us. So I view this through the prism of pretending that we're not in the United States, but we're in Nicaragua, where last week representation, right? Last week, over 126 Republicans in the the House of Representatives asked the Supreme Court to bar four swing states from casting electoral votes for Biden. And uh, the two of them were from New York, two of them from New Jersey, uh, including Jeff Van Drew, Tom Keene Jr., Elise Stefanik. They didn't. I didn't see them on. I saw Stefanik on the list. I don't think that uh, the list I initially saw didn't include. uh, didn't include Van Drew and didn't include Kane. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I'll double check, but my but Stefanik wasn't there, and Lee Selden was also on there. Ah, well, but th- that still would indicate that even in New York and New Jersey, uh, there are people who uh, are voting that way. Or have has anything changed since the electoral college met? Well, no, but what's happening is people are living a certain way. So where I'm looking at now from my window, there are still Trump flags flying. Hmm. People have it, you know, in there, you know, and so there is this residual thing that's going to have an impact on the ability to govern moving forward. If you have these people that are making this kind of uh, this kind of stand and it particularly when it comes, as I say, to how we move forward as a country in the midst of the worst public health crisis in over 100 years. 
Throughout the coronavirus pandemic, New York and New Jersey have been coordinating their public health responses closely. But you've reported that when it comes to enacting workplace protections for essential workers, union leaders from both states say their approaches have differed. Is, is one preferable to the other? Well, all I can say is that, and I did this for the chief leader, um, in New Jersey, on, on November 5th, Governor Murphy um, signed an executive order that was a consequence of a collaboration with unions like CWA, SEIU, and groups like uh, immigrant rights groups like Make the Road New Jersey, which does work on behalf of the central workers who may not be represented, may even be undocumented, but certainly are critical to the functioning of the economy. That law, that executive order, required that workplaces, public and private, provide the employers would have to provide basic protective equipment, uh, masks, wear required hand sanitizer, then also make sure that each shift, at the start of each shift, that workers were, uh, uh, there was a health check done, that workers had felt they had to leave because they were ill, had that opportunity. Um, and there was also, most importantly, because this, this was designed on the protections for public employees, in the event that an employer, didn't matter what kind of employer, didn't observe these basic principles to protect workers, which included even making sure that customers coming into the facility wear a mask and observe local public health protocols, people could, could call, and that would set in motion an actual investigation by the Department of Labor and Department of Health. It, that's in New Jersey. If you happen to be in New York, you don't have an executive order like that. The AFLCO would like to see that happen. And then the other piece that's going to be increasingly more important is in New Jersey, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but I, you know, people that listen to the station appreciate granularity. <laughs> we have a situation where every essential worker, that's an ICU nurse, that's somebody who works for FedEx, anybody who has to, by dint of their job, be out in the world exposing themselves potentially to COVID, they have what's called a workplace presumption in the sad circumstance that they get the disease but survive it, have to battle it, or find themselves disabled or in a prolonged sick leave. They don't have to hire a lawyer to get workers' compensation. However, if you have the misfortune of living in Andrew Cuomo's utopian paradise, you do not have that option, and your, your worker may indeed, your employer, even if you're an ICU nurse up to your eyeballs in COVID cases, that employer can refuse your worker comp claim for disabling COVID. And, and you say that's in light of the fact that one of the most underreported aspects of the pandemic is the prevalence of lingering symptoms experienced by essential workers who um, are facing this patchwork of state laws when it comes to workers' compensation. Well, that is... I and that the, that, the, that the greatest failing of the corporate news media has been in not reporting that as uh, the pandemic is a labor story. It is. It is a, imagine if there was a bayonet charge with Mitch McConnell stabbing workers. That would get some coverage, but it, that's what he's doing. When you have an entire architecture of the Republican Party down in Washington with having job one, at least as McConnell sees it, making sure that corporations are indemnified from potential workplace suits related to workers being exposed to COVID because of the uh, uh, neglect of employers. And the reality is that across this country, essential workers, depending on the dent of where they live, may not have the most basic in worker protections. Yeah, it's that grotesque. It's that bad. At the chief leader, you've also been covering how the Trump administration's hostility to federal civil service unions helped to spread the virus because management refused to loop them in as to who had died and, and who was infected. Right. That, that is going to be, that's currently a big, big problem that uh, uh, President-elect Biden is going to inherit. So I was on a call yesterday with a, a national call with uh, about 20 reporters and I'd say a, um, a dozen or so of the American Federation of Government Employee shop stewards and union officials that represent the Veterans Administration workforce, which is huge. And one of the things that they talked about was that, uh, and we've reported this in the chief, and I think we've spoken about it in my uh, visits with you, 
mm-hmm. has been from day one, the Trump administration went to war on the civil service unions, which had been in position to represent federal workers around 700,000, uh, maybe even more, uh, since John Kennedy signed the executive order granting them collective bargaining rights in 1962. So Trump tried to decertify them. Betsy DeVos in education, like physically threw out the unions, try to prevent them from representing members. And so when the pandemic came, the traditional mechanism that the government and management would have in this sprawling federal bureaucracy was missing, which was the ability for uh, the management to speak directly and effectively to the entirety of the bargaining. And so we know this disease spreads in isolation and ignorance. So the degree to which Union members weren't aware of the level of risk. They weren't guided by that. And I'll give you an example. This is and this this is why there needs to be a major congressional investigation into uh, Donald Trump's abuse and I believe collective uh, manslaughter neglect because there have been dozens and dozens of federal civil servants that died as a direct consequence of his suppression of information on the disease. And I can, I've recorded this um, week after week. This starts from the TSA back in the very beginning. The first cases of the uh, COVID was recorded by Heathrow people doing the work that TSA does screening cargo and passengers. They get sick. It jumps to San Jose. TSA officials get sick. The uh, workforce that are doing the uh, uh, passenger screening get sick. The union asks for masks, they're denied. They ask for tests, they're denied. They ask for information about who's infected, they are denied. This happened across the United States in every federal workplace. That includes the U.S. Food Inspection Service, you name it, they turned a blyana on it and promoted the herd immunity concept. This isn't new. This wasn't Mr. Atlas, that, that guy of dubious credentials who was his ear whisperer for a few months. This has been the policy of the Trump administration from day one. And occupational health experts note that the policies of the states have have become particularly important because the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration has yet to issue pandemic regulations. You think they should? Evidently, we're standing down. This is a national issue, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it is. It's huge. And, And it is. And it's just not, you know, the way that we're doing this is we'll find two or three people who have compelling stories, who were a local figure of, uh, of cultural or of spiritual uh, significance who's in central work who died. We'll have a gauzy image of them and a mass cause, but we won't talk about how it is they came to die or how the federal government or the local authorities let them down and set them up to die. Bob Henley, who reports for Public Radio Salon, the chief leader, and other news outlets, is our guest again today on Let It Locate at Large here on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Another big story that you're covering in New Jersey is about the push by Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield to reinvent itself through a corporate reorganization uh, in Trenton, from being a nonprofit health services corporation into being a mutual holding company, uh, is that a problem? I'm, I'm not sure I understand what's what's happening there. Well, so it, it also in the new descriptor, the advocates of this, which are the very high-paid uh, individuals from uh, Horizon Blue Cross, um, it'll be a nonprofit mutual holding company, and so. This, it's important to set the scene here. First of all, in Trenton, um, the state is under duress, like all states, but New Jersey is, is, is particularly uh, in a bad way. One of the things that's just not widely understood is that New Jersey has the dubious distinction of having the highest per capita death rate of COVID, some 200 per 100,000, putting us at the top ahead of New York. I'm sure other states are doing their best to catch up. Mr. DeSantis is working hard. Um, and then also... The Marshall Project has released a report, New Jersey's convict death rate, inmate death rate per 10,000 is also highest in the nation. Um, And so it's in this, uh, there's also a major budget crisis, huge multi-billion dollar shortfall. 
by way of background, uh, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield has existed in New Jersey as a, in a special place, a special category protected by law as a nonprofit in the sense that it uh, was given this monopoly hold. And it's very important to do some background, if I may, a little bit about the history of Blue Cross Blue Shield, because when people hear that, it kind of their eyes glaze over, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, that sounds like it's been around forever, and it has. And, they, and, and I've and always they, thought of them as the good guys. Well, and that's that's right. That's that's a good point. And the reason why, so the Red Cross, uh, you know, 1880s, it's founded, but Blue Cross Blue Shield started as, and this is kind of ironic, as a grassroots national response in the Great Depression to poor people and working people being without health care. So mm -hmm. let's create a broad-based, nonprofit, philanthropic effort to sign people up for health care. Sign me up. Sounds like a great idea. And so from the pulpits of the churches, this came out. And so Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts would hand out flyers. And so this is how it was for decades. And then, of course, uh, the uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shields in each state all went through various manipulations where it became really like a tiered marketing scam where you could retain your Blue Cross Blue Shield Association emblem and be private or whatever it was that you managed to wangle out of your local state legislature. So in some states, it indeed continuing being that. In other places, it was bought and sold and turned into a publicly traded, very high price thing for CEOs. And so... That's the status. And so New Jersey was kind of late to this dance. The proponents of it argue that um, this this old model prevents them from investing money uh, that they can put into improving the delivery of medicine and of health care. Um, and they insist that there are protections made in this legislation so that it's roughly accumulated around $7 billion in public health assets um, that are the result of this protected status. And so on the other side are people like um, uh, Citizen Action, uh, Consumer Union, uh, the Appleseed Foundation, a public interest law firm. They say, whoa, don't go so fast. Let's look at this. Make sure that by doing this holding company, you don't put at risk this this asset. And the, uh, about over 50 percent of New Jersey belongs to this health care um, insurance provider. Now, the advocates point to Michigan as a great example of how this conversion was done. But they don't mention that the CEO's uh, salary went from around a million to $19.2 million. Wow. So that's the lay of that land. So, of course, I'll tell you that this is all nonprofit. But in my world, uh, nonprofits usually don't have a star chamber filled with people mm -hmm. making multiple millions of dollars. How are New York and New Jersey dealing with budget shortfalls? Um, are, are people being fired? Because you reported recently of, on a worker who was fired by the New York Correction Department. I'm sure well, that people are fired all right, the time. Right, right. So that 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 interest in, that was the story, and this is uh, in some ways uh, why it's so important to be represented by a union. Um, this is the case that involves SEIU Local 246, which was the mechanics union. They take care of all the vehicles, anything that rolls, it's got a combustion engine is the responsibility of this workforce, fire engines, sanitation vehicles. And this young man, 27-year-old, worked for corrections, had been there for two years in a probationary title. And that's the kind of the way these jobs work. You start out as a service worker, you do your, your job, you show up on time, and then eventually you become the best civil servant. That was his hope. Um, his significant other... Um, is a police officer in the Bronx. Um, they're a lovely couple. They're expecting their first child. Well, he gets COVID, catches it from his significant other who's on the job in the Bronx. And he comes back to work, and they fire him. No explanation, just like, see you later. Um, and so uh, this is something where, the, and this is the kicker. This is what uh, Joey Colangelo, the union president, angry, was that the union put up a poster um, in, I guess, the common space at Corrections uh, uh, Garage saying our union uh, brother is falling in hard times. You know, you're all feeling it, but, um, you know, he got fired. He's got a child on the way. And the Corrections um, Labor Relations Office called the union to take down the poster because it was depressing and would make people unhappy around the holiday season. So 
that, but that's just one story. But this is what's happening is, of course, the city's under pressure financially. This young man never got an explanation for why it was terminated. Under the civil service rules, if you are a probationary employee, there's no guarantee you can be terminated like a provisional without notice. But this goes to the general challenge that's happening, which is everyone is getting squeezed. So you're seeing that at local county and state governments that the Mitch McConnell, um, you know, star of the cities, it's beginning to get traction. Um, they even this latest bill that they're going to pass and then pat themselves on the back and go back home for the holidays and have some eggnog. It's not going to do what it needs to do for the cities and states. And so um, you will see them do all kinds of things and limp to the finish line. And it's an open question about what's going to happen. We saw millions of Americans, a record number of Americans have gone into poverty. Uh, and we know that um, uh, the civil that the local governments are running out of cash. There are opportunities for, um, you know, they're just crossing their fingers that with the election of, uh, of Biden, that something's going to change. But the reality is, even with him getting in, unless there's results in Georgia that give the Democrats control of the House, we're talking about several months of any real relief, if, if at all, from the federal government. But there are other ways to get money. You know that New York State requires Wall Street traders to pay on every stock trade but that these monies are not always being collected and that Wall Street is actually being refunded the tax money? <laughs> yeah, well, you know. I, I don't find that funny. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm Bob. just saying it's funny. Like when you're strapped for cash, all of a sudden you look at the cushion. So, yes, let's go by way of background. In 1905, uh, a Republican governor faced with a $5 million, oh, wouldn't that be great, budget problem. Uh, passed a stock transfer tax. It's like five cents per $100. And so at the time, the New York Times, not such a great lady then, opined that this would be the end of the stock market as we knew it, that they would take flight to New Jersey. And the gray old lady, not so great at the time, actually had to have a retraction a few months later and observe that indeed things were going along swimmingly well. And so this was like even before the creation of the Federal Reserve. Now, this tunes on happily with this little bit of money, this tiny pittance that falls off of the mighty table banquet that's set by uh, uh, Wall Street. And it was no problem. Then in 1984, some Democrats, you know, we have to be honest here, I think it was Kerry as governor and Beam as mayor, were like, oh, they might leave. And so let's rebate it back. And thus it remained that way. And the switch remained in the off. And so, indeed, we've been rebating back uh, billions upon billions of dollars. Uh, uh, some of them in full stack uh, up in Schenectady estimates it's $138 billion just in the last 10 years. And okay. so that's hard. No, go ahead. Finish. No, so that and now there's a move in the legislature led by Senator James Sanders in the Senate. Phil Steck in the Assembly, several unions have signed on for it, to just have uh, Andrew Cuomo turn the switch back on. You could even sunset it if you're afraid Jamie Dimon might you know, lose consciousness, just at least so we can get through this. I mean, you're talking about $1.9 billion a month. Well, you can't blame Republicans on that because Carrie and Beam were both Democrats. Well, the, uh, that's true, and that's why I'm very important to inform that this was, you know, uh, we call him like we see him, but the reality is right now it is, you know, Mayor de Blasio, and, and, and this goes to a fundamental question of equity and fairness. I asked de Blasio about this during one of the press calls, um, and the point being here is that as someone who covers with some specificity what happens in Congress related to the states, I picked up a long time ago a hostility to New York that came out of the bailout for Wall Street. And in red states or in poor districts, they don't have the kind of diverse revenue base that New York City has. Um, there was a feeling that, hey, I lost my house. I didn't get bailed out. And yet Wall Street bankers did get bailed out. And this, this reared its head on the floor of Congress during the Sandy debate when we were looking for aid because Sandy had devastated us. And even in the 9-11 BCF resumption of the, the Drug Act, there's this attitude in like, now we, those of us who are working class and poor, know that we didn't get a big taste out of what happened to Wall Street. And 
we were victims of the same foreclosure crisis, uh, and I know this firsthand personally. But the reality is that outside of our region, the attitude is where the fix is in for Wall Street. And that's why it's important for one, yes, we deserve aid and support for the ongoing uh, success of municipal government in, in the region. But we also have to take care of our own house and make sure the degree to which our current system is unfair and doesn't make those that uh, are doing so incredibly well pay their fair share, especially if the tax is already on the book. It's incumbent on us to throw the switch and start collecting the money again. Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio have a thorny relationship. How do Governors Cuomo and Murphy get along? Because their styles, just watching them on television, are so different. Well, and there is there's a common thing like um, they all have, and I've had a chance because of watching all of the the homilies that they do every day, and I do have to listen and go from Zoom call to Zoom call. So, uh, one of the things that um, you have with Murphy is his style of homily because they've all had practice of talking about dead people. He will always mention the civil service group that you were a part of or your local activity if you've died, and then the sports team you were affiliated with. It's pro forma. Anybody can write it. Uh, Cuomo occasionally references uh, a person that has died, not as often. I mean, uh, uh, Murphy has it baked in. He's always going to do three, and he does, and it's a nice touch. He calls the person and the family, the family of the person who's died. Uh, I've never, I don't, Cuomo may do that, but he doesn't get that retail value. Uh, in terms of big picture, like there was a kind of coordination that happened in the first wave that was, uh, I would refer to it as, I think, uh, the writer sales, this bioregional concept. So you did have, particularly because you had a predator federal government, which we did have and still have, the predator government, imagine that Putin is running it had turned against the state. So what Donald Trump did um, is actually turn the states against each other in the response to the pandemic and put them in competition for resources. He saw to it were scarce. That really happened. That's what occurred. That's what's still happening, which added to the death count. And so as a consequence, Murphy and Wolf to our West in Pennsylvania, Lamont in Connecticut and Cuomo, that kind of an access of efficiency. Then as the disease went into, went out and started devastating the rest of the country and we went down a bit, then what you saw happen is things broke up a bit. So right now, and a function of this is because the, the actual nature of the outbreak is a little bit different. So you have a more draconian response in New York City where you have the shutdown on the in, in, in dining inside dining, whereas Murphy has yet to do that. And you do see Murphy is playing this kind of, he plays a little footsie with Trump, right? Like he went down there and was knee to knee with him because he thought he might get some extra tchotchkes out of it, maybe some ventilators. So he tries to play a little. When Cuomo goes down, he never has a picture with Trump. So I, I hope I've done justice to this, this rather nuanced. Uh, well, they've been having a, a, a war of words. So um, I can't imagine that Trump will even look forward to seeing Cuomo. Uh, <laughs> right. But there was a point where he would go down and meet with them. Hmm. And but again, there would be no pictures generated. And, um, you know, and he would occasionally try Cuomo would try to use some notion like when the ship came up, there was this idea that he would give credit to the administration. But no, you're right. He is. Uh, but and Murphy doesn't go uh, toe to toe. With Trump, the way, in fact, even Murphy actually sent some National Guard troops to help Trump out when he was putting down the what was happening in Washington. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I want to get back to my conversation with Bob Henley as soon as possible, but 
But I need to take a, a moment to ask for your support for WBAI. All independent media are experiencing difficulties because of the pandemic, but as a small public radio station that relies completely on the generosity of its listeners, we are in a particularly difficult position. And that's why we're asking everyone who tunes in regularly to London Locate at Large to step up right now and go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this unique station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI while giving us the kind of enduring support that we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. You can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with. Bob, isn't non-commercial radio particularly important at a time like this? I would say that um, particularly uh, in this in this climate, because one of the things that's happened over the arc of my lifetime is the decimation of local news. And what I mean by that is information gathered by individuals with no particular interest in how it turns out. And so imagine, when I think when I was 17, I started writing for the Ramsey Meyer Reporter in Bergen County. Um, I was, you know, only 17, but there were adults whose job it was to actually go to local meetings and to go back and report as best they saw right what it was that was going on. That architecture has disappeared. And so now the information that you're getting to a large degree is driven by your previous choices and your, um, your what they call con uh, confirmation bias. So it will tell you the things that it, you, know, you, you think you need to know, but basics you know, just are, are lacking. Important civil defense things, uh, understanding about what's happening in your community. Um, and so I would just say that, you know, if you look at the conversation that's happening now, the major debates of the day, whether it be the George Floyd and police accountability, uh, all of these things were being discussed about my entire adult life decades ago here on WBAI. So if you want to get a sense of where the culture is going, you've been paying attention all along. And so the only way that we can ensure that this fundamental institution created for people and by people endure is by those people stepping up. So um, again, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go online to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. And my guest is Bob Henley, who's a regular on this show. We talk about uh, matters in the news, especially with a, uh, as they pertain to our area. Uh, now, uh, it's interesting that uh, New Jersey uh, passed, recently had an election which uh, uh, the voters uh, passed a constitutional amendment uh, about uh, making the, uh, about the sale of marijuana in the state. Uh, so what, what's happening there? Is, uh, is, this, is this a way for New Jersey to uh, to get more money uh, because of the, I imagine that they would be taxing the the sale of the marijuana. Well, this has been uh, my colleague uh, Max Zero from Insider NJ, the editor, uh, has been tracking this with some granularity. Yeah, the voters come up with something and they they have an opinion about it that kind of breaks the logjam. But um, the, uh, the 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 challenge is the small print of how it's actually rolled out. And so that's what they're right in the midst of doing right now in the legislature. It's caught up in a whole mix of things like, for instance, does the state grant Horizon Blue Shield this opportunity to change its structure? And then the state would get $600 million and then maybe $650 million over the next 18 years in the aggregate for a total of $1.25 billion. Uh, and then in the mix is how does this uh, marijuana program get rolled out? Do we make sure that the way it's structured uh, provides in some way some recompense and uh, recognition about the drug wars taking such a, um, uh, a disproportionate impact on communities of color? Uh, what does that look like? Um, and then um, how do you make sure, for instance, that out-of-state actors that are already capitalized in this area don't come in and blow up uh, whatever authentic local efforts have been created. So it's very complicated and uh, it's something that has to be followed. And it, again, it's all part of this, this fiscal struggle that the state, the state finds itself in. 
Well, New Yorkers uh, would go to New Jersey to take advantage of the lower uh, gasoline prices. Right. <laughs> now New Yorkers are going to be going to New Jersey to buy marijuana legally. Uh, won't New York State be under more pressure to, to legalize it? Well, yeah, I'm sure that they'll get around to it. And that's also in the play. There is a, a movement in Albany. Uh, of course, it's so much of it's being done by Zoom now. Uh, but again, all of this is this collective duress. These decisions are all being made. And that's part of the, the real problem with the, uh, the atmosphere of scarcity, uh, which is really um, uh, it's, it's separate and apart from what's happening with the pandemic. This squeeze play by the central government is causing bad choices all the way down the line. So all these other things of legislation, you know, um, so we're, you know, it's like similar to like a child. We're bringing into the world all these new projects, but into the, we have to deal with the atmospherics that this ridiculous policy in Washington of starving local county and state governments. I mean, it, it was just in a, um, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez made this point quite brilliantly, I think, pointing out how quickly the, there was bipartisan support that was veto-proof to move 700 some billion dollars in defense appropriation. And yet when it came time to sustaining the American people, they had to roll it back and give time to uh, uh, Mitch McConnell to try to get in his corporate indemnification against lawsuits for, uh, for COVID. I mean, it's really that obscene. Now, uh, Thanksgiving is being blamed for the spike in uh, COVID-19 cases, and now we have Christmas uh, nearing, and many epidemiologists are expect uh, an acceleration again. Um, what measures are New York and New York and New Jersey taking, other than running those ads on television that suggest that we wear masks and and uh, keep uh, six feet apart? Well, this gets into back to where we started the conversation, which is, as you know, coming into uh, I don't think we had convened for, in time for discussing what happened with Governor Cuomo's edict about uh, an executive order that wanted to keep private Thanksgiving um, dinners uh, and gatherings uh, at 10. Mm. And so that that was came out of some CDC guidance. Um, and that was that was born out of the realization, and that's another important thing to understand there, is that even with all this partisan um, things that have been going on with the disease, the science itself has evolved as we've gotten a better understanding of the nature of it. And one of the things that has come into focus, and this was kind of known if you were reading the white papers or peer-reviewed stuff coming out of Asia um, months and months ago, was that the primary cause of this uh, spreading this disease were these social encounters. That's why in, in, in China, um, where they have less expectation of civil liberties, when they lock down a place, they lock it down, and that's it. And so here— And people don't complain about wearing masks in China. No, no. And so here, what you had is the governor comes up with this edict, and then immediately um, the county-level sheriff, um, uh, they start picking fights with him. And, and part of it was— also the way that the executive order was drawn. And so the governor took the position that, you know, the sheriff's point of view was, well, how am I going to enforce this? And is it going to be the 11th person we arrest? Supposing a family has more than 10 people. I mean, this is, you know, and of course, many of them were Trump supporters, but they were getting at an underlying point that had some validity, which is, you know, when you make a standing blanket order like that, uh, the degree to which it doesn't have flexibility or doesn't account for the way that people live, you make it easy to disobey it. And so Trump, um, what you saw was that Cuomo responded basically saying that these people that are raising these questions were law enforcement officers and you can't pick the laws you want to enforce. And And so one of the things that happens with this when you get this kind of thing where people are, again, using the moment to build up their political brand and not trying to educate people. I mean, the key point here is to explain to people what is the underlying science driving the number 10 and to try to come up with uh, ways that people can work through this rather than hardlining it into an adversarial position where the whole exercise becomes about how macho male you are, whether you're Cuomo or one of these sheriffs. Are we better prepared than other regions because of the challenges that we faced last spring? 
Well, I guess the the problem with this is that I would be relying on the the granular reporting on the ground about how things are and to be able to give you an answer. And what we does it matter whether that, well does it matter whether you live in Greenwich Village or Staten Island? Well, or I, Newark? I certainly compliant. I would certainly say that the history of the social the cultural response of where you live does matter. And there's been very strong science that shows the places where the culture endorses mask wearing and social distancing, there is less prevalence of the disease. That's well documented. As far as the public response, that is the machinery of government, it's widely variant. And one of the things that's happened is this disease has taken a terrible toll on the healthcare professionals. And they've been now dealing this with this for months and months and months. And the other thing that's not widely appreciated is that it's not just a stress on that essential worker, but it's one borne by the entire extended family, anyone in their household. So imagine you're a firefighter or a nurse or any, and you've had to deal with the fact that you have an in-law or a relative or a daughter or a spouse who has some very delicate pre-existing condition. You've now been living in your garage, living in your car for months at a time. And so that's this just a lack of understanding of how, first how little bandwidth people had going into this, right? And now what the implication has been from having to endure it with so little national cohesion. And that's been a big part of the problem. And I think people are hopeful that in January 20th, that at least we'll have a shot at an effort to, effort to make some kind of national comprehensive response. You know, nurses and healthcare uh, workers have been called heroes, but we had a strike in, in Rockland County recently. Nurses went on strike because they felt they were being taken advantage of. Is that happening in other areas as well? Well, I would say, and that was controversial even within the union. Anytime a union is going to go on strike, it creates, uh, particularly uh, there are people yeah. within the union that will argue like this is uh, a damage to the brand because the idea is that we're going to be here no matter what. On the other hand, yeah. folks will say, hey, we get played like suckers if they always can count on us showing up. So let's, we, it's impossible to speak with any kind of universality on this topic. It's very much important if we talk about where. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the uh, hidden figures of this whole thing uh, has been the laundry workers. People that are, uh, SEIU has a unit that is uh, provides the important work of cleaning and sanitizing all the uniforms and all of the hospital linens in the region. There's a company that called Unitex. They've been doing this for years. The family, it's a family-owned business, many, many millions of dollars, highly profitable. They're the dominant force in the Northeast. Um, the the patriarch of the family had a great, apparently reasonable relationship with the union. Things went along well. Union, uh, the workers did okay. They could always use a raise, but the business grew. Then the son got in charge, apparently, new sheriff in town. He's going to show the union his boss. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've got um, three workers that died in the Newburgh facility, and they're not getting the basic protection from COVID they need, and they're not seeing the, the raises that they require, nor renewal of contracts. So they had a two-day strike in Perth Amboy. Uh, it's that granular. Um, and so... What's happening is there is, prior to COVID, there was already a shift in attitude about labor. You were seeing uh, an increasing likelihood that there were going to be strikes. After a long period of labor being afraid to be militant, members at a grassroots level are driving this. And you're seeing Amazon workers, you're seeing gig workers, uh, you're seeing uh, the Taxi Workers Alliance in New York City, you're seeing um, food delivery workers. Um, developing cohesion, beginning to focus. And this is all happening at the same time that there's this huge transition where white guys like you and I that have been running the show all of a sudden have to make room for a new generation of women and people of color. And that's all happening at the same time in the labor movement. Bob, you have to speak for yourself. I haven't been running the show. If I was running the show, <laughs> I'd, I'd be a lot more though. economically comfortable than I am right now. But anyway, that's a whole other matter. New York State was expecting to receive 170,000 doses of vaccine for the coronavirus this right. past Tuesday. Did that happen? Well, it did. Uh, evidently, it did. I haven't heard the governor say otherwise, but uh, and there is discussion. I'm trying to uh, 
I guess some, it's expected that next uh, week the uh, FDNY will have an opportunity to inoculate uh, members. It is a pretty complicated process uh, because, of course, as everybody knows, this, uh, a, this sub-zero temperatures that are required for the uh, Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and then you need two the, shots. So 170,000 right, doses is really just 85,000 people in a state of, of many, many millions. Right. Well, as a matter of fact, Cuomo did address this when he talked about the fact that there were 600,000 healthcare workers. And so you do have to make choices. And, and 90,000 nursing home residents, uh, elderly right. nursing home residents uh, are supposed to be among the first to receive the vaccine. But uh, there are more more residents than there are people who can receive the vaccine. Right. And there's also, um, it's, it's also this workforce, the people that do this, from what I've been through a couple of dry runs watching this as a demonstration, there's a reconstituting the vaccine from its state that as it comes, uh, it's delivered to you, then there's a storage issue. So it's, it's something that requires a skilled workforce. And there's no doubt that, you know, this is just of its own, even if we didn't have a political transition at the federal level, this is a huge challenge. And there's also, I mean, one of the things to give Cuomo credit uh, is that um, there is a concern that the way that this vaccine has been formulated, it requires these, these massively cold temperatures. Uh, this does not make it easy to distribute into the very communities of color that were hardest hit by the pandemic. And the way that um, the Trump um, oligarchs configured the vaccine program, it favored the idea of the conventional distribution networks that go through people that have a, a primary doctor, people that have a that are part of established networks. And this is exactly the problem that we've seen writ large in terms of where this disease has gotten its uh, taken the heaviest toll, which is in the places that are out of network, in the yeah. communities that have been traditionally denied um, uh, their fair share of access to health care. Bob Henley is my guest on Leonard Lopez at Large today on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We only have a few minutes left, but let's talk a little bit about national politics. Didn't the Republicans seek to block President Obama at almost every turn? Is there any indication that uh, they will act differently with Biden? Or, or is it my sense uh, that actually things have hardened in the years since? I would certainly think that the behavior with the um, <clears throat> business of the hundred and some odd members of the Congress signing on to the Mika's brief, attempting to overturn the elected, the duly elected cast ballots of primarily African-American voters is doesn't bode well and shows a historic nadir for the relationship. And I heard that um, a president-elect Biden is thinking about offering some plum to the Republicans, the Department of Commerce or something. I was hoping he'd appoint Yang to that position. Um, but so I do think that there is a kind of disconnect um, between the, the national leadership um, in terms of like where Biden's coming from and, and the real dire circumstances that are happening at the grassroots in the country in terms of the impact of this very pernicious uh, authoritarian fascist faction of the Republican Party that seems to have command and control of much of the local county apparatus. And so I think that they have to get another playbook. I think this idea of this period, there's no honeymoon. There is, there's only duress. And so I, I do think that they need to be um, more attentive to the people that brought them to the dance. And that includes um, the young people, who turned out in record numbers and the progressives that came through for them. But I also, it's also my sense that the Democrats are going to go uh, to war with President Trump. Uh, district uh, attorneys uh, in New York and elsewhere are already talking about investigating uh, things that may have uh, been illegal. So uh, it's my sense that we're going to be facing quite a few years of of a war even after Republicans admit that Joe Biden uh, was fairly elected president? Well, I would say, and I think that it's very curious, no one's really looked at what exactly DA Vance, there was a lot of reporting uh, uh, 
by WMIC and uh, Andrew Bernstein about the uh, things that um, Vance had an opportunity to do uh, regarding the Trump children, particularly that property in, uh, in Manhattan that is represented, at least the prosecutors thought they had a case that they had made material misrepresentations, which put them in a criminal jackpot. Apparently, a, uh, a Trump fixer came and visited Mr. Vance, uh, and that case appears to have gone away. And then there was some kind of campaign contribution involved. We don't know, as a practical matter, if he's running for re-election. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think that um, I don't know if anything's really going to come out of any of this. I know that uh, Attorney General James has been on the civil aspect of it. Uh, but the, the the concern that I have, and I think your analysis is correct, is the, how this plays out when it comes to how something that's really important to people, which is the combating of this virus, plays out. And that's where um, you have this wide divergence of attitudes, and that is going to have could have a deadly consequence for people. And and so um, I agree that uh, this uh, this cold civil war that continues. Uh, uh, is, is, is of great consequence. And I don't think that, um, I think that the way that we're even talking about our politics nationally fails to capture just how, how much it's devolved. Well, Democrats are rich too. Biden and his wife are reportedly worth several million dollars. New Jersey, Jersey Governor Murphy was a Goldman Sachs executive worth several tens of millions of dollars. Andrew Cuomo is worth several million. Most members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, are millionaires. Uh, and the elite get concierge health care. Members of Congress and the president get the best care available on the planet at taxpayers' expense. Um, if And I only have a minute left. If lawmakers are protected from economic or health care or environmental troubles, what motivation do they have to solve these problems? Exactly right. And that's a great way to close. And that's why it's important for uh, particularly labor to be militant in a way they never have before, because at least they have a place at the table. And there's so many workers that are under or not represented at all. If you would like, I'm talking to listeners, if you'd like to uh, find out more about what Bob Henley has been writing, uh, you can go to muckrack.com. Is that right? Where he, they'll find that's, articles? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then also I'm at Stuck Nation and I take direct messages. And my great thanks to Bob Henley for being on our show today. You can read him in Salon, the, the chief leader, and all sorts of other publications. You can often hear him on public broadcasting. Thank you again, Bob. We'll speak to you soon. Merry Christmas. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom, who prepared today's interview. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast, and you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to comment about anything that you've heard on the show or simply say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, so we're asking everyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to become a member. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Monday when veterinarian experts Drs. Megan E. Heron and Carla Siracusa will make a return visit to our show to discuss how to help your cat cope with holiday stress. Have a great weekend.